Welcome to another episode of the First Incision, a CMF podcast, where we explore issues affecting our Christian lives as medics in today's world. I'm your host, Dr. James Howitt, and I'm here with Dr. Kate. Thank you very much for joining me. You're welcome. So Dr. Kate is a GP at a university town who has come today to talk to us about dealing with transgender patients. Transgender is one of those topics that is very hotly disputed at the moment within medicine uh, and it's important that we understand how as Christians we can relate theologically but also that how we relate on a personal level. It's important that we recognise that we are going to be seeing these type of patients uh, and how do we how do we treat them with with love and with the respect that they deserve and show them show them the love of Christ and manage their medical problems appropriately? Uh, so, Dr. Kate, thank you so much. It's lovely to have you with us. How My was your pleasure. How was your journey down? Very straightforward, actually. Um, nice and uh, the trains were running to time. There were no holdups. It was all. Very easy indeed. Thank right. you. And what kind of stuff did you get up to? Because we've just had a bank holiday weekend. Okay, it's yes, been nice right. to uh, nice of a three day weekend. What kind of stuff did you get up to? Well, we drove down to Pembroke, um, which uh, was a very actually quite a quick journey, and then we um, spent time with relatives of my husband's, mm-hmm. and then on uh, um, uh, Saturday we went out to an island off the west coast of Pembroke, um, which has a particularly large puffin Ooh. colony. And a number of um, very rare birds, half the world's sheer mankwater birds or something half like that. Half the world's what, sorry? I have no idea. Something like sheer mankwater okay. or something like that. And so is this your first time? Have you been to the CMF offices before? No, I've never been here before. Welcome. No, really All right. Okay. Well, when we're done, yeah, I'll take yeah. you on the tour anyway. Yes, please. It's, uh, really it's, like it's slightly it. more glamorous than the, the loos downstairs, which I showed you right at the beginning. <laughs> I was just finding the lights going down and coming back up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you didn't get lost down there anyway. We would have, uh, it would have been a real shame given that you'd come all this way. <laughs> So it'd be great to kick off. So tell us, how have you come to have a particular interest in helping transgender patients? Well, it's sort of um, been uh, something that's happened to uh, me because of the sudden increase in patients presenting with this particular issue. Until um, uh, 2014, I'd been at the surgery for, I guess, about 20 years. And we had you know, less than half a dozen patients who would describe themselves as transgender. And then suddenly in, in October of 2014, there was this huge increase in uh, the number of people presenting. And I had three in one uh, month in October. My colleagues were experiencing something um, quite similar. So a real and influx so of patients. we had to learn quickly. We had to equip ourselves with the knowledge that we needed. So it's obviously it's obviously really great that you're here with us and that you've got this kind of breadth of experience. I think before we we delve into anything, it's so important that we understand the language that we're using, so because things can be very easily misconstrued. Are you able to just define for us the, the kind of the basic terms that we're going to be using, so that we're all on the same page? Yes, absolutely. Well, the the word transgender uh, means very specifically people uh, who have a gender identity or gender expression that differs from the gender that they were assigned at birth. So that's quite an umbrella term for a whole range of different uh, expressions. And that can include and does include people with gender dysphoria, people that would describe themselves as uh, bi-gender or or pan-gender or, or genderqueer. So it's quite important to recognise that trans, that f- word transgender is a very, very broad term mm-hmm. that incorporates a lot of different um, components. I think the next 
word that I would or expression that I would really want to get my head around would be gender dysphoria, which is uh, a condition where a a person experiences discomfort. And that's the important thing, discomfort or distress, because there's a mismatch between their biological sex and their gender identity. Uh, And the really crucial bit is is the distress There are many people that would describe themselves as transgender who would not experience distress. And another um, expression is um, birth sex or sex assigned at birth. And that's essentially, it speaks for itself really, Mm. um, what you're described as as when you're born. Mm -hmm. uh, Your your DNA, your XY chromosome equals a boy xx equals a girl and then one's uh, the another one's gender identity one's gender identity uh, is one's internal or, or, or deeply held sense of of one's gender and and so for transgender people their own internal gender identity uh, doesn't match the sex they were assigned at birth whereas for the vast majority of us, we do identity identify, we do identify with the gender assigned at birth. And you and I would be called, um, uh, you would be called a, a cis male, I'd be called a cis female, C-I-S, it's the Latin for the same. Whereas trans men um, would be um, the opposite. Uh, and a trans female is someone that was assigned male at birth. Another expression is uh FTM, female to male, uh, male to female, MTF. So trans female would be someone who was assigned the male gender at birth and who now identifies as a female, is that correct? And the same, obviously, reverse for a trans male. Okay. Uh, So so can you give us an idea of how widespread this has been within kind of within your own clinical practice? What kind of scope of patients are you expecting to see in general practice? Well, I guess... 15 years ago, um, if you'd asked that question, the statistics that would have um, been expressed would have been something like for gender dysphoria, so for the the distress, there would have been something like one in 10,000 men expressing gender dysphoria and one in 20,000 women expressing gender dysphoria. But um, those figures seem to be changing. And more recently, um, the figures suggest that those that would express themselves as transgender is something like one in 180 now, which is considerably higher. Significantly higher, yeah. And people that would be uh, describe themselves as possibly gender non-conforming, sort of not fitting into um, their birth gender or possibly a transgender in an easy way or possibly um, expressing themselves perhaps as as non-binary then that could be as high as something like one in a hundred right okay and and in our practice um i think we have something like 20 patients with gender dysphoria Mm. and possibly nearer 50 that would be um uh gender non-conforming wow so that that's a huge change in a very short space of time 
And obviously that's a new population group of patients that have very unique medical needs that we yeah. need to be able to. Now, I know we're not going to be discussing kind of specifically the the, the integral medicine, if you like, that's a, a, a kind of outside the scope of this podcast, but some of the things to, to kind of think and bear in mind. So, so what kind of challenges have you faced when treating you know, someone whose identity uh, and their gender identity is not the same as, as their birth gender? I think the the vocabulary that one uses is very important in just in connecting. I think the first thing is how do you connect? How do you form a, um, a, a relationship with someone? And the start for me has been using the, the, the pronouns that they prefer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's the first step. I think another has been time pressure because they come with a, a whole background of um, issues very often and you want to be able to hear their story and get to grips with that in a deep way and that requires time so we have the time pressure as well um i've i found that occasionally i i find myself confused by the appearance um and struggling to know how to interact and a lesson that I learned relatively early on was always to remember their whole story, to remember their birth gender, and to hold that in the front of your mind, because that does simplify everything. Of course, I don't say that out loud to them, and mm. I hope that they would never have a sense of me um, uh treating them as their birth gender but as I relate to them that helps me think without confusion and I'm sure people there are medical problems that are specific to specific birth genders which actually will remain the same in a lot of ways regardless of what I de- what gender you identify as I'm I'm sure you mentioned the the pronouns I mean that's using correct pronouns I mean even even that is something which is uh is not a unanimous uh you know decision amongst everyone and, and there's discussion around whether you know using pronouns is the is a correct kind of way to go for people how have you can you tell us about how you kind of came to that decision you said you know I'm, I'm going to use the pronouns that people people have asked me to use what were your thought processes behind that I wanted to be able to connect with people okay and um at, at the first step, using the correct pronoun will enable that to happen. If I don't do that, well, then the um, consultation, the relationship will last one consultation. Yes. And they will go on to one of my colleagues. And I do, I really do want to look after people that are wrestling with this um, or uh, uh, um, working their way through this. And, in, and I therefore need to start where they're at and uh, listen to them very carefully. And so I, I, I will, if necessary, ask them what the correct, what pronoun that they want to use. I'll ask them what pronoun they would prefer me to use. Mm-hmm. Um, Just like you would with a lot of exactly, patients, you'd ask them exactly, about how you know, they want Mrs. to be referred or doctor to. Or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, and that hasn't been problematic so far. If, um, I think if someone felt that they found it uncomfortable using a preferred pronoun, then I would opt for using the person's name at every time that you would use a pronoun. Mm, And that way you are sort of 
acting with your own personal integrity uh, whilst respecting the person opposite to you. Indeed, I like that. That's really good. Thank you. So, I mean, obviously, part of the part of the ongoing management for some of these patients, at least, is referral to the gender dysphoria clinic. Uh, does that kind of come with any specific challenges making those referrals? Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I'm sure for most people, it's not something we've ever done before. Well, um, the the Royal Colleges, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and the Royal College of GPs encourages to us to refer quickly mm-hmm. um, if we have a patient who has gender dysphoria because of the um, understanding that the suicide rate is very high indeed. Um, so, sorry to interrupt. So does that mean that you'd refer on the first consultation often? or? Well, my experience has led me not to do that. Okay. So initially I did, but I don't any longer mm-hmm. because... I want to really get to know their story and I really want to spend time with people and um, build up a rapport. But when you refer to the adult gender identity clinics, you have a very long form that goes through the uh, psychiatric and medical background and also the social aspect of these um, decisions for the patient. But right at the end, there is a sentence that says something to the effect of in in referring the patient, you commit to prescribing the hormones that the gender identity clinic uh, may or may not recommend. Mm -hmm. And um, you cannot um, refer the patient unless you sign up to that. I did try and sign up and cross crossed out that bit um but the form was bounced back right um so uh it is unusual i've not i'm i'm not aware of any other um place where you uh um in a sense dare i say it abdicate um responsibility for prescribing uh before the patient has actually been seen so i have a i have a question about that i feel uncomfortable with that but another issue is that the um Hormones that are prescribed um, for gender dysphoria or treating people with transgender issues, the the cross hormones, the uh, estrogen and the um, testosterone, uh, are are not licensed in gender dysphoria other than sustenon, which is a testosterone injection that you get every um, get injected every three months, but all the others are uh, not licensed. And that um, means that I am responsible for any problems that arise as a result of these drugs that are being prescribed by me. And that must put you in quite a difficult position, obviously. Well, it does, because um, the Medical Defence Union uh, is quite clear that if you put your name at the bottom of the prescription, you are responsible for any problems that might occur. Mm. So... Um, There seems to be a bit of a a, a disconnect um, in terms of, or I'm caught between, it feels like a rock and a hard place in terms of uh, treating people. I want them to be seen by the gender identity clinic, potentially, but I can't get them seen unless I agree to prescribe the hormones that I have very little experience of prescribing and for which I I am responsible for. Mm. Uh, if there's a problem. And there are problems, potentially. These hormones come with side effects. 
I mean, that, yeah, I can totally understand what you're saying about being between a rock and a hard place. How have you, how have you personally managed to to, to kind of marry those two things? Um, well, the gender identity clinic does um, send us uh, a very fulsome letter, giving us plenty of advice about the frequency of of monitoring these medications, uh, blood tests, and. Um, um, so they don't just leave you totally yeah, on they, an they island with, no, with nothing. Not at all, not okay. at all. So that's helpful. Um, so I you know, follow that to the letter, mm. really. Um, I, yes, I, I'm finding I'm wrestling with this one. Okay. Um, I am wrestling with this one. And I, I have yet to speak to the GMC and ask them um, what would be their particular view on all of this. And also, um, the the medical defence union were a little surprised to discover that this letter had this particular disclaimer at the end. I can imagine. Well, maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll get an update from you in due course in a further episode. That'd be uh, very interesting. So we've already spoken uh, quite a lot, really, about language and about different pronouns. Uh, but can you tell us about a time when, kind of specifically, language has been an issue for you when dealing with transgender patients? Yes. Um, early on in when when I was just starting to get to know um, people struggling with this, one of my first uh, trans female patients um, gave to me a document that had been written by the LGBT uh, group uh, within the local university on how GPs should deal with transgender patients. And included within that document was uh, a vocabulary that was preferred which I found very interesting indeed. And so a number of the thing, one of the things that they suggested was that you don't talk about um, sex change, you talk about transitioning, um, and you don't be specific with the type of surgery. You don't talk about breast augmentation or reduction, you talk about top surgery. Uh, and the alternative is is bottom surgery, um, and so that was very interesting, along with all the, the pronouns that were preferred as well. Um, yes, that gave me pause for thought. I can imagine, and how I mean that's that that I feel that's a very uh, quintessential kind of uh, seen as a problem, if you like, in GP patients that come with you know, with letters and things and other things to to. to to give to their doctor, I guess. How did that? How did that feel as a professional? Do you think that was a beneficial thing for you to have? Or uh, where I work, it's not particularly unusual. Right. And I, 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 it made me smile. It made me a little bit, um, uh, very slightly nose out of joint, but only for five minutes. Okay. Uh, and then, so what other concerns do, do we as clinicians need to have around these patients? And, and kind of when we're dealing with with patients with transgender, what kind of other things do we need to be thinking about? Well, it, it is important to uh, remember, well, to start with, remember the birth gender, because when people um, choose to identify as a gender uh, different from the one that they were assigned at birth, um, the the medical records, if they, they've asked for this, the medical records change the gender. And therefore, they come off all the screening programs that would be normally assigned to their normally attributed to their birth gender. So any um, trans male will no longer have any breast screening or any cervical screening. And obviously for uh, trans females, that would be um, 
uh, prostate screening if if that was um, something that was necessary uh or and therefore you you just have to remember these um potential uh, illnesses and of course cardiovascular risk and all the other things that will occur more particularly with one gender than the other so um remembering that is very important uh, and there is no mechanism at the moment for routinely calling up a trans male for cervical screening. Um, they would have to remember to do that themselves. Actually, that, falls, that burden falls to kind of you as the GP, yeah, does it, then, yeah, to, to yeah, remember that yeah, that's a... Yeah. Gosh, wow, because, yeah. of course, yeah, that's something that if the if the computer says gender male, that's then right. you wouldn't think about having to, to do right. those kind of things. That's really interesting. And the, the other thing that's important um, is, of course, contraception. Um you have to choose that more carefully. If someone is uh, taking testosterone, you can't use estrogen-based products, of course. But um, it 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 means that you have to think about pregnancy as a another issue if you're if you're dealing with a trans male. And 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 something that I've learned is that your sexual orientation has no bearing whatsoever on your gender identity. Uh, and so remembering that means that I can remember to think. Um, uh, fertility-related issues um, in people that, that come to me with various different problems. I feel like that really is an ultimate kind of holistic approach to, to patients, really, isn't it? And, and treating the whole patient that you see in front of you. Yes. That's uh, there. Um, so, I mean, apart from obviously we talked a little bit about physical health, there's obviously a number of mental health uh, yes. consequences associated with uh, gender dysphoria yes. and with, with transgender. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, um, that's a huge part. So um, the statistics suggest that the suicide rate is 20 times higher in people that have transitioned than in the rest of the population. Gosh. And... Um, also, uh, you know, more than 40% of them will have attempted suicide at some point in time. So that's um, really significant. It doesn't mean that transitioning uh, increases your suicide rate because you just don't know what might have been the case if they hadn't transitioned. Of course. But it does mean that we need to have a um, uh, have that very much on our radar when we're looking after people dealing with these issues and really think to care about them very carefully indeed. Wow, gosh. Um, I mean, as a, as a this is something that that I've I've found myself wrestling with, and I'm sure many people listening have. As a as a Christian doctor how do you see your your role i guess in this in the management of transgender patients um are there specific kind of tensions that you come across and and how how do you manage those things how would you kind of encourage us to be managing those well i i, f- I find myself thinking that it, it seems to me that there's a secular ideology that's really driving the therapeutic approaches uh, ahead of the supporting medical evidence and it's curious to me that uh, we are giving medication that supports someone's gender identity very much more so than looking at how we might uh, support them within their birth sex. Uh, and I just wonder if that is right. I'm waiting for the um, evidence to support the particular approach that we're pursuing at the moment. But at the moment, it is really lacking. It is lacking. Okay. 
And that must be that must be really difficult as a clinician to try yes. and, and obviously yeah. you're you're doing, as you've said, what you believe is the best way of, of kind of being in a relationship and showing love and, and being with patients. But that must be really difficult when actually we're maybe even taking a little bit of a stab in the dark with regards to treating these patients. I think it's going to take twenty or thirty years before we know whether this is the right mode of action. Okay. Uh yeah, I look forward to seeing the results in 20 to 30 years time right okay i mean everything we've talked about so far really has been uh has been around adults and and, and that kind of stuff but obviously this is this is not a, a condition which only affects adults this is very much a debate around children as well uh can you tell us a bit about any experiences you've had with with children identifying as transgender because obviously that will raise a whole different set of questions i've only had one child um brought to me um, a nine-year-old um, who um, was referred who I referred to the gender identity clinic um, it, it is uh, it brings a whole lot of different issues children vary so much uh, in how they perceive themselves and that is an area that changes constantly and I and I do know that the clinic in London that seeks to look after these children uh, tries to adopt a very very flexible approach so that it's accommodating to uh, the child's needs as they progress through their life. 25% of children under the age of 12 are started on puberty blockers. Now these puberty blockers uh, are there to give them a bit more time as they approach puberty and give them thinking space and and used as a diagnostic tool. Uh, They're also um, uh, thought to be um, reversible, completely reversible. But I think the truth is that nothing is totally reversible. And these um, hormones um, may cause changes in the brain that we're not yet fully aware of. Um, it may result in um, changes within the society that the, that the individual is uh, circulating with, in. Um, and if, as it seems, that once a child does start on physical treatment, uh, they continue on it, that means that a child of less than 12 is is starting on treatment that is um, going to affect their fertility long term. And I just wonder to what extent um, children of that age can really grasp the significance of um, infertility, um, um, health changes, uh, possible increased cancer risk for some um, uh, treatments. Um, And I, I... I, I am concerned about that. I'm sure the clinic involved is wrestling with that as well. I'm sure Imagine. that's the case. I'm sure that is. And when you refer children to the clinic, do you, does one have to sign the same disclaimer about prescribing then? No, absolutely not. Okay. In fact, the clinic is very clear that they do have um, uh, endocrine um, experts looking after the children um, because they feel that that's way beyond the remit of a GP. Dr. Kate, thank you so much for coming in. It's been really great to hear everything that you have to say. Uh, this is obviously something that you've you've really struggled with or, or kind of wrestled with yourself and something that I'm sure a lot of our, our listeners are wrestling with as well. Do you have one kind of take-home piece of advice that you could share with us before you have to go? I think the take-home piece of advice would be time, time. Uh, this is such a complicated uh, issue 
and uh, in order to understand people properly, you really need to spend time with them, hear their story, uh, learn about their journey and develop a rapport with them. And I think if you've got that relationship of trust that just comes with time, then you have got more opportunity to help and support uh, in in the journey that lies ahead, wherever that may take them. That's great. Thank you so much. Dr. Kate, it's been a real pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. Uh, I hope that you've enjoyed your time being here. And I hope for all of you listening, that that's been really informative. Uh, join us in two weeks' time when we'll be doing another episode of the First Incision of CMF podcast. Uh, and until then, have a good two weeks and God bless. Mm-hmm.